Hello, this is Michelle Weston with Wellness Learning Curves 2.0 for Radio 360, Talk Radio for Women. It's great to be back with you. I love connecting with all of my listeners, and we're here to empower women and men to live their best lives. Um, My show is about chronic conditions and living your best life, having the best quality of life as the patient, as the caregiver. And it's always been important for me to have experts from integrative fields and fields that are a little off base. One of the most important is something that I do, patient advocacy and health and wellness coaching. But I was connected, ironically, through... LinkedIn, correct, Emily? Yes. Okay. Emily Bernstein and I connected through LinkedIn. And that tells you how many patient advocates there are in America. Um, Emily is in Rhode Island with her dogs and her husband. And um, she's quilting right now for a baby shower (laughs) that she has that I love that she's doing. Um, And we connected because she had read some of the stuff I was posting or connected because of what I do. And I love that she reached out because the patient advocacy world, we know that it takes a village. And we also are not territorial. We really work together very hard because everybody has specialties in patient advocacy. Some of us us love dealing with insurance and crises and billing, dealing with um, things like uh, uh, making sure that people have their um, papers in order, making sure that caregivers know how they can help a patient. There's all different ways to be a patient advocate. You guys know that I work with neurological conditions and I also work with people with bariatrics and medically managed weight loss. That's my corner of the universe. Um, And Emily Bernstein came from another area. So Emily, tell them how what you were doing before that sort of helped you know that this would be something that you wanted to do because you became a caregiver. I did. Yes, that's right, Michelle. Um, So I, for many, many years, well, actually back in, I think, 2014, I got my master's in international education. And so from there, I was, I was picturing myself working. um, And I did for a few years work with, uh, you know, international students coming from abroad to study here. Um, I worked with some study abroad offices where we send American students overseas, that kind of thing. And then I went to work in um, travel, which was, of course, dealing with people from all over the world with the vendors, but it was also um, customer service based. So Mm. from that, I learned a lot about how, you know, to solve a problem, you have to know who to talk to, what to ask for, which buttons to push, which levers to pull um, in order to keep the wheels moving, but also, you know, get the job done. So that really um, was a really great, I say I grew up there (laughs) at the travel company I worked for because it was such a formative experience for me. Um, And while I was there, my mom did get sick. She was having kind of crazy neuro conditions and different symptoms that kept popping up. Um, She fell at one point and we didn't know if she fell because of the neuro issue or the 
fall caused the neural issue. It was like mm. a chicken or egg thing. Right. So a very long time, about a year and a half or so, she was going back and forth and back and forth to different um, doctors and specialists and kind of tossed around. And um, that was infuriating because sure. um, no one doctor would, you know, he was willing to uncover all the stones necessary to actually get a diagnosis. So um, that was really the very formative part. And then she was eventually diagnosed with um, CNS lymphoma, which is lymphoma in the nervous system, nervous system fluid in the brain. Wow. So Wait, course, so wait, there's one thing that I know you said to me that's important for people to understand. Were you living in the same state or the same? Oh, no. Okay. Okay. I was in Rhode Island the whole time and I grew up in Michigan. So my mom was, was several hundred miles away. Um, and yes, I was doing this. I went back and forth many, many times, but much of it was virtual. Yeah. Okay. Because it's important to people to understand, you know, when you can't be there logistically, sometimes you learn such lessons that when you learn about patient advocacy and you start to advocate for yourself like me or others like Emily, you learn things and you say, wow, this is really important what I'm doing because I'm having to advocate for my mom because she's not getting the answers we feel she needs. Mm -hmm. And you have to gently and nicely figure out how to communicate as the daughter, as the husband, as the, you know, as the spouse, as the child, as a sibling. Um, so it it's always interesting to see how we do that. I had to do that for my mom in Michigan, where I came from as well, when my mom got myasthenia gravis. And I was lucky because my sister lived there and she was yeah breathtaking in helping our mom because she lived 10 minutes away from our mom. And right. my brother was in Chicago and I was in New York. And we were lucky because there were, she was there at least, but it's, it's very challenging, right? You're like, why can't they figure this out? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. The distance, I actually say, I think the distance provided an interesting and kind of an important element in this whole process because like my sister lives there as well. She lives about half an hour from my parents. Got and it. her role has always been house stuff, you know, I mean, getting the groceries and helping with the cleaning and getting the help she needs in the house. So she, her role has been very hands-on. Great. But because I'm further away, I have more distance between all of those day-to-day -day stuff. So I can sort of help to kind of guide the bigger picture type, you know, coordination of care questions um because it's also it's just so when you're a caregiver to to see beyond your you know the tips of your fingers it's impossible like <laughs> you get so stressed and you get so overwhelmed with all the questions that are running around and you have no idea how to answer them and and of course I had some of that and I've acknowledged very much that I'm not the best person to help my parents in, in a lot of ways because okay. I'm too close to it. But, but you know what? You have your time, sister. You have your sister. So there's a little exactly. bit of balance, right? But how did over you... the time, so she was back in 2019 and we've built up a team. You know, we have a we have a full-time care manager now. We've got the doctors that she needs. We've got the you know alternative wellness people that she needs, like all of that kind of stuff. So the team in place, the elder care attorney, that kind of stuff Great. has been a long journey. And now it's kind of a much smoother running machine. 
That's great. And you mentioned to me something that I really appreciate. Glad to hear about. You were working with a patient advocate who has been doing this for a long time from Tennessee, who was looking to help guide younger patient advocates coming into the field. Tell us about that. Because as I said, we believe it takes a village. So we're not territorial. And I love that this woman in Tennessee felt that she had a skill that she could help more people coming into the field because we need more and more of us mm-hmm. than you can imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. So once I decided to kind of dive into patient advocacy as a as a role, you know, I looked it up and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. I can actually do this. Um, and so I started doing all the educational pieces through the different professional networks and stuff like that. Um, and then I went to a conference in Chicago. Um, and I ended up we love this story. I asked her, my computer charger was dead. So I asked, she had the same time the laptop as I did. So I okay. asked her if I could borrow her charger. And we ended up sitting in her hotel room for like three hours, solving all the problems of the world, coming up with, you know, brainstorming business plans and everything. So it was really kismet when we met. She's truly an amazing woman. Her name is Nicole Broadhurst with Tennessee Health Advocates. Um, love it. So, yeah. So I have from since then, um, I have sort of been working uh, as a guinea pig for her as she grows her um, advocate training program. So she calls it the circle. Um, and then so we meet every Wednesday um, to talk about, you know, different aspects of being an advocate, things like um, researching your market, um, closing the, you know, clients, where do you find your clients, different tech platforms we use, that kind of stuff. So that's really helpful. And now she's started the inner circle, um, which is where you can actually go to her for like more hands-on mentorship. So that's um, great. Yeah. So is she, um, has she been doing advocacy for a long time? Does she have a specialty in advocacy? Yep. So she was, um, uh, I'm not entirely sure what her role is. I probably should know, but she worked at a hospital system doing billing and she was pretty burned out um, Mm -hmm. by the kind of within the system and being kind of hamstrung by the system. Right. So she left and she started her own practice about five years ago now. So she's doing all billing advocacy. Um, okay. That's and that is, that is so hard. And does she do that for other states or just where she is? Because mm-hmm. it's different in each state, yep. so you guys. We both help people. It, it, it's sort of different. I mean, the laws are different. And of course, yes. you have to kind of research that when you're dealing with something more technical, but the hospitals are the same. So we, and then the board certification, so you can get board certified as a patient advocate. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. So BCPA, board certified Mm -hmm. patient advocates, very important because it was created by, actually, I know one of the people who worked on it and that's Terry Dreyer. And Terry Dreyer actually created the first Chicago um, conference that I went to before we had all this craziness of, of pandemic and universe. But it's important to understand there is a certification. It is an exam that you take, and it is about ethics because this is about, and it's called bioethics because it's about medicine. And it's also about questions on understanding what a patient advocate is responsible for and what Mm -hmm. they're not 
responsible for. Right. Because we have, just like I talk to you guys about health and wellness coaching, it's important to look for somebody who's certified because they have a certain level of education. And that doesn't mean the people who haven't had it aren't great at doing it because people come from different fields. If you came from law, if you came from medicine, because there's doctors and nurses who do patient advocacy and health and wellness coaching. So, but if you're someone coming into this field who didn't work in healthcare, it's very helpful to know, look for somebody who has training and education so that you know you're in really good hands. I love that. Emily has transitioned and taken her skills of being really good in, quote, customer service, dealing with people with crises. Yes, I know, you know, traveling doesn't sound as bad as advocating for a patient, but (laughs) they're right. They're all crises. They're all things that have to be held immediately. And everyone is concerned and, you know, more reactive, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, we would joke, like, why is everyone freaking out? No one's dying at it, at our, the travel company, you know, but and now, <laughs> I mean, well, but sometimes it kind of was stressful, you know, we had to get people out when there was hurricanes coming and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, and then the pandemic, of course, was quite the wild ride, but mm. so it was, it was really good training in crisis moments. It was also really helpful to be on the other end of a phone call. Like when I, so now when I call hospitals and insurance companies, I've been in their shoes. And so I know, I know a lot more about like what, what might constrain them, what they might be looking at at their computer screen, what information they're allowed to give me, what, you know, they're probably, they're probably phrasing their words more carefully. Very much so. Oh, always. Okay. So you guys let, let us understand, let us explain something to you. Patient advocacy, we're listening for things. And we're also knowing that today the healthcare insurance business is a very, very difficult landscape. Okay. It's just very difficult. It's private insurance. It's insane. It's not like it was in the 80s when it began and we had health insurance. It's gotten more and more about business. Well, living and dying is not about business. Living and dying is about living and having to go through a terminal illness and have the best as you know as i've said before which i love learning in patient advocacy you want everyone to have the best end of life as much as you want them to have the best quality of life and that's why when people hear things you know and i've had on this show people who are experts at um dealing with end of life, whether you um, are given a terminal illness and you want to um, go through end of life in the area of going through Seattle or a state that uh, lets you um, end your life because of what your symptoms and what's going on with. Everybody has those rights. And We want you to have the right paperwork. We want you to make sure that you understand what all of that means. You know, how many people don't have in place, right, Emily? Their will. Their living living will. Well, the power of attorney is so important. How about people, 20-year-olds have such a hard time understanding, and we all were 20 at some point in time, why we say to them, 
it's really important to understand you need to make the decisions on, God forbid, you were hit by a truck. Okay. I mean, right. got in exactly. a car accident. It's too what? late at that point. It's it too late. Right. We want you. Right. So we want you to be able to make the decisions. Do you want um, to have um, uh, uh, food uh, delivered through tubes? Do you want, you know, ease of comfort? What do you want so that it's not a morbid thing? It's actually a logistical thing. And many people who are in their 20s, when they start to, or 30s or 40s more so, as we get older, when our parents start to get to those points, we, you know, my, my, my aunt is 83 and she still does not have her will done. Yeah. Do you know how crazy this makes me? Because I want her to feel like she has in place what she needs in place, you know? And a living will, a power of attorney, all those things. By the way, it does change from state to state. Most of it is the same. Yeah, those some, kinds of things do. Right? But some states, they have certain additions or subtractions. Mm-hmm. And you can look that up. Go online, enter in, you know, power of attorney, enter in, you know, what are the other things we enter in? Power of attorney for by state. What else do we tell yeah. them to look up? So power of attorney is is really the biggest one to me because it it has the most it can impact you while you're still alive. <laughs> so so explain why that that became well, because, so anytime you become incapacitated to act for yourself. So like you said, if you're hit by a truck, or you know when you're when you get old, if you become mentally incapacitated, you can legally be de- deemed. Um, oh, what's the word? In, incapacitated. Yeah. That you're that that you're you're not able to make those decisions. Exactly, exactly. So it's just that actually will can still impact you while you are still here. Whereas the will and everything is is your afterlife which wishes. So I do think that's really powerful. Um, and there are some really incredible people out there doing advocacy for this kind of work. Um, death doulas are. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> so cool. Amazing. No, so yeah. cool. Have you ever met? Have you met any? Because I've I met have. some. Yeah, so at that conference, there was a woman who was a an advocate, but also a death doula, and she helped people design their end of life. And I think it's so important, especially like as my parents get older, and so many choices are removed from them. Like they can't make their own choices in a lot of cases because. The system's not designed for that. So. Yeah, and right. And also, you know, understand there's a, there's conferences for patient advocates. I think there's one coming up this fall, correct? Oh, yes. They're in New Orleans. Um, we're all we're all going. Well, many <laughs> are going. Many, many are going. people are going um, to the Health Advocate Summit in New Orleans over Labor Day. So um, that's actually, I think it'll be an interesting group because it's going to be physicians, hospital advocates. Okay. Um, Which is different because I, when I went to school um, at Sarah Lawrence, there are people who are hospital advocates. I chose like you to be an independent patient advocate because I didn't want to, I I personally didn't want to report to a CEO of a hospital. I wanted to report to a patient or the caregiver, right? They can only work within their system. Yes. And they're working for a system. Exactly. They're working with the system with, which has its own policies and its own you know, benefits. And so I always say that independent advocates are really 
Um, like obviously it's very helpful to have an in-network in hospital advocate, but they can't pick up the phone and call your physical therapist or <laughs> you know, your insurance company. They might be able to call your insurance company, but they can't cross all the bridges that it might take in order to get you the care you need. So that's why I think independent advocates are really the only person acting solely on behalf of patients. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. What do you think are some of the lessons that you've learned that you could share with people on why you decided? I mean, we know your mom, mm -hmm. but what did you see in it that you thought, you know, I'd like to extend this as my crossover second career because mm -hmm. I'm good with crises and good with people? Mm -hmm. So I've always known I wanted to work for myself. Like that was going to be my definition of making it, you know, it was when I did, when I didn't have to request time off for vacation. Um, so I've always been kind of looking for my calling. And when I found out that patient advocacy was, was a real um, career, you know, it, it checked off so many boxes for me because it really used my skill set. Have you heard of Ikigai? No. What is so, that? A Japanese concept called Ikigai. How do you spell it? I-K... Let me look it up again. I-K-I-G-A-I, -I, I think. And so, yeah. I just love that, you know, you, you're you introducing me, you guys. She's introducing <laughs> me something, a Japanese concept. What was interesting about Ikigai for you? So it's this concept of this, of the intersection of what you love, what the, the world needs, what you're good at. Okay. And what you can be paid for. Okay. I love it. And where did you learn about this? Um, somebody, uh, as I was, I, I met with somebody who told me, she, we, I was just talking about, I was talking about this book called When the Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. I love, oh, one of my a, favorite. Yep, yep, yep. Oh my God. <laughs> so it's a, a um, Hmong family from Laos that comes and immigrates in the 80s to, to California and their whole journey navigating the system that they have no idea about. You know, they want to go sacrifice chickens in the hospital. And so they interview both the family, but also the doctors about how they dealt with it. So it's just a fascinating book. And I was talking to this woman, like, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to help the people that have no idea where to even start. And she looked at me and she goes, you found your ikigai. Oh, I love that. I love that. And you know what? You're talking about something that I also studied. Um, I've taken intensive for. So in my next life, when I have the energy for um, Columbia University has a program called narrative medicine and narrative medicine is about the storytelling of a patient. So one of the books that we read is the book that you just mentioned. And there's many stories of patients and also doctors of how we go through an illness, a chronic illness or terminal illness, because it's a journey. And in the 80s, Rita Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N, was an, she's an internist and she studied a lot of bioethics and she's still teaching at Columbia University. She decided what was missing for her was taking the time to figure out what the patient's story was, like the Hmong family you just spoke of. When we, doctors and others, don't listen to the story of the patient and where they came from, we miss a very important part of what their 
honestly, their medical history is because that tells us a lot about how they feel about illness and about death and dying. That's why we talk about palliative care. When you hear palliative care, people always think that means, oh, you're definitely dying. Not at all. Palliative care. You can graduate from palliative care. Right? And (laughs) absolutely. And people, if you had a horrible accident and went through a lot of rehabilitation, palliative care makes make sure that there's people there in the medical team who can help you heal and recover and go on to the next part of your life in the best of all possible worlds. Mm-hmm. Hospice is different. Okay. Hospice, it, palliative care. I learned about this because it's Good. my mom. And so palliative care can be a part. It's like run by yes. organizations. Yeah. Yep. So not all, different. not all, but not always. That's true. Yes, but it's all. Yeah. But um, what's important about it is that, right. Yeah. And also with hospice, a lot of times if you're in hospital, if you're at a Memorial Sloan Kettering, okay, mm-hmm. for cancer. Normally, when people are sent to hospice from a place like that for cancer, we're looking at six months from leaving the world. And they want to make sure that you're the most comfortable. A lot of people, many people, if they could have their wish in life, want to leave this earth from home. So they're with their loved ones. And that's what hospice is set up for. And there's a lot of parameters. You can't be on certain medications and go into hospice. That's where patient advocates can explain a great deal of things to you about that. Um, They'll work with the social workers that are at hospitals to talk about how this can be done the best way. But palliative care, you know, that's what patient advocates are great for doing because we're not medicine. We're not doctors. We're not nurses. We're not social workers. We're not psychiatrists, psychologists. We're coming to you from a field of advocating for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, going back, I, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt no, you. Go advocating when for you. We were talking about the board certification. I one of the things I loved. Another reason to find a board certified advocate is because they sign this code of ethics. I mean, we are upheld to this code of ethics. And even if you do have a healthcare background, our role is entirely to help you get the correct and the most accurate and the most helpful information. And then you make the decision. Correct. So it's like, because so many people feel so lost and like overwhelmed and frustrated with our system advocates can put it in front of you like on a platter <laughs> you know and then they then you can make all the decisions you know we can do all the research we can answer all your questions but we will not make your decision for you and that's i think really special because it's it's like putting it's giving you a leg up without taking you out of the situation entirely exactly exactly yeah. and you know we can pull them we have nurse advocates there are people that love to do that i have a woman in washington state and i love what dr khan does sima khan k a k a h n what she loves to do emily is if you've got somebody with a really like big question mark illness mm-hmm. that nobody can figure out she wants you to contact her because she loves the process of figuring out what's going on from a medical point of view. And she takes on very special cases to talk with doctors in doctor speak that you and I don't speak. Right. And really has this quality of, in fact, she was an internist. I apologize. She was an OBGYN. She's still an OBGYN, but she's specialized now 
because this is her next career as she's older. And she saw a real need for a doctor advocate connecting with doctors, mm-hmm. you know, and helping, right? Because sometimes I get, I even get intimidated. Okay. <laughs> doctors offices, you know? Right. And sometimes to learn how to do that, or if you've got a really sticky situation, you can call on another patient advocate, which yes. is also why I mentioned those conferences, like the one that's coming up in um, during Labor Day, because what happens at, at those is that we connect. And that, as, Be- as Emily said to you, she connected with um, N- Nikki? Nicole, yeah. Nicole down um, from Tennessee, down in the, her conference that she met her at. That's what I mean. We work as a whole entity and um, that's very rare. Nurses, right? I mean, nurses do that. Nurses work as an entity, right? Right. In a hospital, I always consider nurses the first advocate, that like the first line of fire is a nurse. Note something, and I'm going to mention this because I'm a surgeon's daughter. When when I was diagnosed with MS and I started to go, you know, I was, I saw the doctor who diagnosed me that the neurologist diagnosed me wasn't the best fit she's a brilliant neurologist i i would recommend her highly but for me i wanted somebody more aggressive and that was just my style what was important to me was that i found one who was a perfect fit for me here in new york city and what i learned was that nurses are writing down everything when they see you before the doctor does they are the ones making sure everything gets into the records. So those of us who need disability, who need services like, you know, the the um, the car aid that comes and picks people up and takes them to their appointments if they can't get there and so forth. They need food delivered if they're older. All those little things that sometimes you'll need. Um, talk to the nurse. Give the nurse your big picture. When you give your nurse, when you see the doctor afterwards, after they've taken all the blood pressure and gotten, you know, gone through your lists of meds and all that, make sure that you're telling them if there's any new symptoms and so forth, because it goes into the chart. When the doctor talks to you, they're looking at what the nurse wrote. So they're not putting that into their notes. Mm -hmm. And that's an advocate lesson because doctors and nurses are totally advocating for us. But sometimes you need an Emily or a Michelle or a Seema because we need to sit behind you when you're at an appointment getting a diagnosis or learning about new things that are going on, taking notes for you. Mm -hmm. I would suggest to people to make a list of questions before they go into an appointment or even um, just a list of things they want addressed because you can get so overwhelmed when you're sitting there in the appointment, especially if it's a doctor that's rushed and, you know, only has 15.3 seconds. <laughs> and um, it's just, you know, it can get really, really overwhelming. So making a plan. And then also, I think an advocate can be really powerful to to say if they know, you know, hey, there were four questions on that sheet, but you've only answered one. Please sit down, doctor. <laughs> Until we have all of our questions answered, we are, you know, we're here face to face. We prefer to communicate with you now. Please, you know, if you have a moment, we have a few more things. Yeah. And, and you and right? would probably not feel comfortable asking that of your doctor. But as an advocate, we can say, I'm advocating for you, the patient, and it's what you need. So 
It is. And, you know, I've talked about the language I use and I'm sure Emily has it. I always will say to Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, Miss Smith, I don't think is clear on what you're asking her to do the next six months. So yeah. can you reframe that for her? And sometimes you get pushback. And the, the reason why today they're also under that like eight or 12 minute rule with a patient is because of health insurance. Okay. Yeah. Because it's a private industry and I'm sorry to tell you this. It's about money, which it shouldn't ever be. Life and death should never be about money. They are pushed to see a certain amount of patients a day um, in order to meet those standards, especially if they're faculty for a hospital. They have numbers, okay? And they would love to talk with you for half an hour. They really would. Um, you know, my father was a surgeon, so I know that he would love to have had, you know, he was able to have that freedom in the 70s and the 80s. And, and now they really are against the clock. So sometimes we can help them slow down. Um, and as, as Emily said, you know, sometimes we have to say, you know what, I'm sorry, but we're here live and in person. Let's talk about these three or four things that I know that Ms. Smith wanted to talk to you about. Right. Um, because there's an overwhelm sense. You know, I find that after the first two sentences of especially a diagnosis, you know, a serious chronic one or terminal one, people stop hearing. Right. Which, right? which we totally understand. Oh, right. I mean, like, yeah, absolutely. Right. And you can talk about that, especially with your mom. I mean, what was that like for her, you know, going from doctor to doctor? Why so many doctors? You know, Michigan has a good Good, you know, oh, yeah. And setup. they were driving back and forth to Ann Arbor, to the University of Michigan. Like they were all over the place. And, you know, it, it, it took, she, they thought it was a stroke. They thought it was the mini strokes. They thought the it TIA? Yes, the TIA. That um, they thought it was Lyme. They thought it was MS. Mm -hmm. um, so she had all different specialists. And then, um, you know, I finally, I, I literally walked into some of these doctor's offices with a clipboard and a tape recorder <laughs> to say. Good idea. Very good idea. Yeah, because I think my parents are of the generation where, you know, authority is authority. And I just was fed up with <laughs> not getting answers and getting pushed around so much. So finally, they get, gave us a referral to get a biopsy done, but then I had to find someone who would do the biopsy because it was in such a horrible location. So I mm -hmm. got a lot of risk. So no one was willing to actually do the surgery. So then I had to call and call and call and find someone who would actually schedule her. Um, so it was just, it was a lot of manual labor to get this done. And I'll never forget the moment when after the surgery, she was still asleep, but you know, it was between a glioblastoma at that point or, or lymphoma. And when they came in and said lymphoma and I was thrilled, <laughs> you know, because the alternative would have been steel later in, you know, a few months. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, you're right. I, I couldn't hear anything that he said after that because it was just buzzing. And I was, I just wanted to call my dad and tell him the good news. Which, <laughs> so guys, know. listen to that. A tape recorder. Yes, I know that foreign thing, but you can use your iPhone. Your your iPhone yeah, has a tape recorder. Don't like, yeah. you know, don't think that, you know, you have to get an old school, but I still have my cassette recorder because I wrote a book and I used a cassette recorder. But the point is, is that we do get overwhelmed as humans. And Emily has had that experience, you know, 
live and in person. You keep pushing. We keep pushing as your advocate for you to get the best Mm -hmm. answers for the best care. That's what we want for you. <laughs> so my logo is the wheel, you know, because my company is called Navigate Health. And so my uh, my my big mission is to help you navigate the system through, you know, driving the ship for you. But also, I always say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I love it. So that's like a double meaning, but you really do have to be persistent. I mean, we've gotten huge bills waived because it was more expensive to deal with us than to... Hey. <laughs> pursue paying the the patient um so yeah it, it especially i think in the billing world yes but man oh man persistence is important persistence and 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 also doing it in a way that is not yes. um pushy because yes. you, you because you're writing a very very careful thing. I just had an issue with um, my hospital where, you know, we're all using my chart. Many of us, especially younger, are using my chart and making our appointments and looking at our records and our blood work and all of that kind of stuff. And um, what happened was like a day or two before I was going to the doctor's office to see my neurologist that I see every six months, I get this thing that flies up on my my chart and it says here's your estimate for your visit my estimate excuse me i have health insurance i just saw the rheumatologist last week so what are you talking about because i always pay my copay right mm-hmm. okay it's for seven hundred dollars with mm-hmm. the possibility of being billed 450 dollars. i'm like this is reprehensible what is this and if I wasn't an, an patient advocate, imagine an older person, Emily, opening up this and being told that on Monday, and it's a Friday, you're going to have to pay the possibility of $450 or $700 to see the doctor that you have your health insurance under. Mm-hmm. And I was flummoxed. I was. I called the, the the customer service and I was sent over from customer service hospital to customer service physicians. and. I really didn't get an answer. Well, I got a kind of answer when the gentleman on the phone said, look, this had to be led by your physician for us to send this. I said, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. So when I saw the doctor, I came in a little early and brought in, I ran off a copy of this piece of paper that showed up on my screen. And the manager came to visit me in the room before I saw the doctor. And she goes, can I see that? She goes, you should have received, we have like a letter that's a page and a half about the possibility of more fees. But if you have insurance and you've always been paying your copay and you're just coming in for your annual, your biannual, I would have been scared too. So being able to advocate and say, can you find out why my child is now doing this? Because I'm concerned about all of my clients who are patients who would be scared to death to get this, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what advocates can do. And sometimes we get it trial by fire, right? This happened to me. But she was really glad to see it. And she said, I'm so sorry. I said, this wasn't you. And I'm glad to hear that there should have been a letter that should have prefaced this, right? Because it is a relationship between yeah. you and your provider that can really be sullied by filling snafus and man i've talked to some providers that are just so uncooperative and i'm like you got to go somewhere else because 
you know, it's, <laughs> you just need someone that's going to work with you. Because, yeah, always. They also, will. They will, the right? Things, well, most of the time they will. Um, the number of things that get pushed out to patients by accident through just, you know, form Such as? From the, coming through the system. I mean, just like that, the, the estimate that probably shouldn't have been sent with, unless it was with this letter, letter. but it probably shouldn't have been sent at all, you know? Um, and then- you know, the number of statements people get, you know, if they're getting close to going to collections, they'll send out more and more and more. It's like rapid fire billing statements. And it's like, that's just a waste of trees, please, you know, and um, just all kinds of letters. I mean, my, some of my clients have, <laughs> I'm like, can you send me a picture of that? Because I don't know what you're reading to me. <laughs> this is right. gibberish. And right, good right. Impression. Right. So. And it is, it's scary because, you know, yeah. um, when you get these older people, yeah. I met a woman at, uh, at a doctor's office. I was there for another appointment and I was just waiting for my doctor. And I hear her daughter who came all the way from London to help her mom in her eighties because her mom was seeing a rheumatologist for great pain, grave pain with maybe rheumatoid arthritis. I'm not sure what it was, but she was seeing a rheumatologist and she was hit with like a $750 bill that she paid. Emily, do you want to know why she had to pay it? Which she didn't because in the state of New York, we have something called a surprise bill. So you send it to Albany. That's a federal bill. That's well, now it is, but Oh, oh, okay. Now, now, which is great because I'm glad you said that. Now we have a federal bill, but it started with certain states saying you need to send those kind of bills to us because that's not okay with us. Um, what happened was her mom paid this bill. The the insurance company had recommended she see Dr. So and so. Well, guess what? Somewhere in the line of setting up the appointment. Somebody didn't do their homework to check that they were in her Medicare plan. So, oh my goodness, if there wasn't a patient advocate, you know, I heard the person from the doctor's office doing doctors, you know, doing, you know, uh, you know, hospital speak, doctor speak in a faculty practice. And after she, she, the daughter stayed calm. I was very glad. I went up to her and I gave her my card and I said, you are not to take this on alone. This can be handled. You're in the state of Connecticut. I have people in the state of Connecticut that can help you because your mom should not have paid this bill. Mm -hmm. And I don't want this to happen to her again. And I think that there's some money owed from the hospital for this. Um, and she goes, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that you guys existed. Exactly. So that's why I want people like Emily to talk about her experience because it's not just here in New York. It's not just in Chicago. It's not just in Boston or Los Angeles or San Francisco. We're talking Rhode Island. Every state has great patient advocates. And we know each other. We all work, you know, a lot of us work with each other. I'm on a, a discord channel, just like a text thread um, with so many advocates. And if I have a question like, Hey, what does this mean? I can just re reach right out and ask them. It's so great. And you know what? That's something that I would say, because I don't know that, I would say, Emily, can you send me the thread of what that is? Because I want to get on that thread. So when I yeah. have questions, because, right, because we're all, I took my classes, you know, in, in, you know, the early 2000s, what happens with the possibility of finding out even from people who took classes in patient advocacy, um, in 2010, 2015, there's a lot of growth. It's 2023, yeah. right? 
So yeah. let, right. Really so come right. Yeah. It's come a long way. What do you think are good tips of it's come a long way that you've learned um, from your uh, studying with and working with Nicole in, in Tennessee and going to the summits and so forth? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think like you really hit the nail on the head that awareness of our existence <laughs> is really the biggest barrier that we face because a lot of people a lot of people have either you know worked with an in hospital navigator like we talked about somebody that works for the system and then you know it wasn't helpful or something went wrong and then they think oh all advocates are you know they're they're steered away from the profession but a lot of people just don't know it exists and so i think the really big bur- burden or the hurdle we have to get over is is education and and that's starting to happen especially with covid i think people really learned I had one client who um, qualified for one of the COVID care waivers. So his care should have been covered by the federal government or by Medicare. And um, he, they didn't process it correctly. And so he got this bill for $19,000. Oh my goodness. And he had fought it so hard on his own. When he called me, he was like, I think I'm just going to pay it because it's so hard to fight. And So there's so many learning curves, even within the system, where you have to process things. Laws are changing, procedures are changing. (laughs) If you ever try to go read like a Medicare um, policy document, good luck, because it is gibberish. (laughs) But they're coming out all the time. And so people don't really know. Like a lot of time, that's, that's another reason we have to work with the healthcare professions as a team, because... They, we have to work through it together, you know? It's a puzzle and we have to put the pieces all together as a team. So anyway, I think that is a big thing that is moving forward in the professionals and also clients are seeing advocates are an incredible tool. Um, I remember I told my one of my good friends who's a hematology oncologist and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a patient advocate. And he was like, please, please don't be one of those <laughs> those really? that storm into my office and like boss people around no reason for that kind of the stereotype that professionals and providers kind of have I'm and sorry so to that, hear that wow I'm well, sorry to hear he, that wow he was, I think you probably had a negative experience you know and um I was like don't worry that's that's not me uh but but it is coming along like people are realizing that it is a valid profession it is a valid tool that you can use as as a patient, and it's really important when doctors want to work with this And let me ask you, you know, dealing with the billing offices of doctors and hospitals and so forth, um, do you think that advocates are really important because we have more patients? I think that we have a little distance, correct? So let's talk about that. Having a little distance, what does that do mm-hmm. Having hiring a, a patient advocate for this? Yeah, I was just talking about this. So, so take that person that I worked with who was so fed up he was going to pay $19,000 he didn't owe. When when it's your problem and when it's a burden on your shoulders, you feel so hopeless when every time you get a no. Um, and so it, it really becomes a burden. It becomes a, a job, right? It takes so much time. It takes so much emotional labor, so much heavy lifting to get this job, the solution that you need. So when it's your problem, 
it's almost impossible to get through it without, <laughs> if it's a really big issue like that, you, you break down. And so with an advocate, if I get a no, I just figure out another way around it. I get creative. I go around, wiggle. like I am working with one hospital where I cannot get for the life of me someone to answer the line at the department I keep being sent to. So I found a number in the risk management department, which is the patient experience department. Okay. So I wrote a report to them. Hey, my patient is having a terrible experience because no one's answering the phone. And she got me a direct contacts email address. Wow. Wow. So you have to just, and so that's the thing, the benefit of having an advocate is like, we don't get discouraged. We always, we've done this enough that we know that there is a way around this. <clears throat> and if you get creative, then you will, you will find it. Um, and so it's just that distance between the emotional burden. It's just so important. Also, when you're stressed, the person on the other end of the phone gets that. And so when mm. you're pushing them and pushing them and maybe crying or yelling or being rude or whatever, which is totally valid when you are literally life or death, it, they're not going to want to help you. And so ad, an advocate can stay more kind of neutral in a negotiating stance that really helps solutions come along. Um, I think that I've seen that in many, many cases where people are like, I just don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, what was your last conversation like? They were like, well, I was crying the whole time. So I don't really know what we talked about. Okay. Well, that's not going to be very productive. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, men and women do this. A lot yeah. of women do. A lot of nurses who go on to their second careers do this. I've met because, as you said, they get burned out mm -hmm. and, you know, they've had enough. Um, but they still want to help patients. They really want to make sure that they get the best quality of care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hospitals are big. You know, um, I've been known to make sure a patient doesn't get kicked out of a bed before they're ready to go home. Mm -hmm. That actually is a law, you guys. You cannot kick a patient out of the bed until they're ready. And if you've got somebody going home to here in New York, a townhouse or a home that is that they're the only right. ones who live right. there, right? You want to be able to have the time to set up a care person who's going to come in maybe they want a man instead of a woman and that well they're they're or you know they've organized for the hospital it's going to be a woman they don't want that so you want to make sure that you slow it down a bit but get the right help that they need advocate for the patient you know hey you'll also hear and emily i'd love your take on this we'll say patient advocates and patient navigators how yeah. do you describe the difference or if there's a difference? Sure. Well, I mean, navigating and advocating are different <laughs> different things. Um, so navigating is much more getting you connected. I, I think a navigator is, is, personally, I think it's the right term for someone in the hospital because so often, you know, you meet with your oncologist, but then you start having eye issues. And so you need an ophthalmologist but you can't wait until the next appointment with your oncologist to request that. So you call your nurse navigator. And we also, my mom had a stem cell transplant. And um, before she did that, there was, it was insane how many education classes and pre-tests she had to get her teeth tested. Her, every part of her body had to get tested. And then she had to learn how to 
eat what she could eat, what she couldn't eat, everything like that. So the classes were insane. We had the most incredible navigator. Darcy was a lifesaver. Because any question we had, we had her number. I still have her number in my phone. Um, so, So those people are navigating the system for you. If you need an advocate, it's kind of going up against the system. Okay. And both are very valuable. No, no, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, it's it's two different things. I mean, an advocate can still help you navigate. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a navigator may well advocate for you if you can't get an appointment in enough time or something like that. Um, But I think that those are two distinct because a navigator can't, like I said, they can't call your, your physical therapist. They can't call your the people in the different hospital system where you might have your podiatrist or whatever, you know, they can't go above and beyond their system. Got it. So it's, Got it. it's a different, they're more, they're more limited. Okay. And um, I'm curious, have you found that um, working with, you know, the navigator, um, is it sometimes a social worker in a hospital or yes. do you find it? Okay. So I haven't done it professionally yet. I haven't worked with anyone in a hospital yet. That's mostly because I'm doing billing things. So it's after they're in the hospital. But when my mom was, yes, Darcy was a social worker. Um, they're either nurse navigators, so they're more medical related. Okay. Um, you know, they're the ones you can call and say, hey, like all of a sudden my eye started twitching nonstop. Is that something to be concerned about? What do you think I should do? Like they're, they're more medically navigators. Um, okay. But the social workers, yeah, are in the system. Yeah. The other thing is advocates don't currently, there's not a code that we can be billed under no. to get reimbursed by insurance. Not yet. But there, you know what? Everybody, as I spoke about this, Emily, there's hope because we now have CPT codes <clears throat> and you have to have a, um, if you pass the board certified uh, exam, which is, uh, comes from the, uh, the American Medical Association for Health and Wellness Coaching, I have a master's and I have to take a four hour proctored exam for that. Again, um, you're dealing with ethics because we all have to understand where our boundaries are, you know, and you have to understand what hat you're wearing. So you you have to be really, really clear and concise. Um, we now see CPT codes for that. Um, and that is growth that, per, you know, certain health insurance companies are starting to take that. And But you have to have an NCIS as the health and wellness coach. So I live with a glass half full. And I think you do too. And I believe that patient advocates, we will get to the point where we will be able to bill as a CPT code. Because I know a lot of patient advocates who work on sliding scales. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends on, you know, what you're dealing with and who you're dealing with. Sometimes you need to do that to offer that to people. Um, sometimes the case is a very big case. As I said, you know, Dr. Right. Khan is dealing different cases. So you're going to need that person longer. But it's important to find the advocate that is your best um, match. You know, you don't think that you can't afford an advocate. I think sometimes you cannot not afford an advocate, like the case you said about the $19,000 worth of bills. Yes. Yeah. Paying out of pocket. I think I'm at an average of saving people $60,000. 
Wow. Average per client right now. Do you guys hear that? Do you hear that? What we can do for you? Because because we're there to fight the good fight. We're not there to fight to fight. We're there to fight the good fight because some things are just unjust or unfair, not understood. And remember, I told you, which Emily knows too, it's now a business. Health insurance is now a business, which makes it more sticky. And that's why you want someone who can be neutral as Emily used that word, which is very important, they can negotiate from a stance that they can be more neutral when you have an emotional, emotional, you know, Mm -hmm. state in this. Exactly. Yeah. Literally. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's important to understand. So, you know, caregivers can reach out for a patient, for an advocate. Sometimes that's the person that I get. That's most of the calls I get, actually, are people, are, you know, siblings or kids or parents of et cetera, you know, saying so-and-so, my my so-and-so is having a, a problem and they need help. Um, so most of the calls I get are from the caregiver, actually. Wow. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And caregivers, any interesting people that show up as caregivers that you were surprised? I mean, normally we think a spouse a child, a sibling? Um, they have all, well, one of my people is in California. So I do, I work with people all over the country as well. And her brother is in Connecticut. So he's doing what I was doing and working remotely to help support a family member. Um, and so that was an interesting um, connection. I also, I helped a woman with her daughter who had a of hospital bill when she was uninsured. And then um, her brother also has issues. So I'm working with two people in that family. Um, I can't think of, yeah, it's either been a spouse or a child or a parent-child relationship for most people. Interesting. Yeah. And I want people to hear that because I want people to understand how we get there. You know, sometimes you'll meet someone just like I met that woman in the hospital, you know, and was I overhearing and listening to a conversation that I shouldn't have? No, it was actually at a decibel that I wasn't going to miss it, you know, because doctor's offices aren't loud. Um, She wasn't yelling, but we know as humans our voices either get deeper or a little higher when we're upset and advocates can help with that upset, you know, and also give you perspective too. you know, what's realistic. Why are you being asked these questions? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you, why are you getting, you know, that flurry of invoices? Like, you know, I, but I always, and I don't know if you say this, I always say when people get a bill and they get concerned, um, is this the first time you got the bill? I'll say, and they'll say, yeah. I said, no, at least three times it has to cycle. At least three times. Never pay the first bill? Never pay the first bill. Marshall Allen is a genius and uh, he wrote a book, Never Pay the First Bill. (laughs) I love that, Marshall (laughs) Allen. And and is he known as a patient advocate or is he a lawyer? He's a journalist and um, an advocate. <laughs> and how come he here here's another case how come he got into it oh i don't know I okay don't i'll have to you know what it's a good you know it's a good idea here's marshall allen a-l-l-e-n never pay the first bill that can help a patient or a caregiver go you know what i may need an advocate right mm-hmm. what an opportunity 
What an incredible conversation between our host, Michelle J. Weston, and our patient advocate, Emily Bernstein. We are so glad that you are tuning in to the Wellness Learning Curves 2.0, and we invite you back for next week, Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, to continue this incredible conversation between Michelle and Emily. You are listening to the 360 Talk Radio for Women. And again, Wellness Learning Curves will be back with the end of the conversation between Michelle and Emily and her next exciting guest. Tune in. <laughs>